sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Josiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, simple nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate. It is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct opposition, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One pastor shares the following story about a first grader in his congregation named Max. And Max's dad, here was the conversation. Dad says, Max, why didn't you answer me when I called you? Max says, I didn't hear you, Dad. Dad says, what do you mean you didn't hear me? Max doesn't respond. 
So the dad says, how many times did you hear me? Max says, I don't know, maybe three or four times. We learn a lot about the relationship between God and humanity through the parent-child relationship. This conversation is a classic one. Bold-faced lie from a child, followed by a massive lack of self-awareness and the inability to, to consistently live out the lie. We're a mess. We're a mess of the people. God speaks, and we choose when we want to listen. God speaks, we choose what we want to listen to. Isaiah's prophecy opens up with God speaking to his children. But his children that haven't listened and refused to listen. As this prophecy unfolds, and as we walk through it, you begin to wonder when God is going to give up. When enough is going to be enough. When he's going to decide to hang it up because he's given them enough chances. And yet we find is God never gives up on his children. Why? Because God is a God who sings. That's who God is. That's his calling card. God is the God who saves. And what we see here is his commitment in this chapter and throughout this entire prophecy is a long story of God's commitment to save his children. You say, what kind of children are they? Who does God save? First, he saves rebellious. Children. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, to the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. As Isaiah lays out the rebellion of God's children, he's going to lay out three characteristics of their rebellion. And I'm going to describe each one briefly. First, he lays out that rebellion is relational. That rebellion is deeply relational. When you sin, you don't just break a rule. You break God's heart. That's how God opens up in verse 2. Children I have reared and brought up. He chose his children, called them Israel. And he didn't choose them because they were behaving or worthy. He chose them because he loved them, period. Then he redeemed them out of an awful, awful situation in Egypt. Awful slavery. He redeemed them. And then as he's laying out the house rules, so to speak, in the Ten Commandments, he lays those out as a design for how his children are going to flourish. The Ten Commandments weren't rules that were going to strip their enjoyment of life. It was a design for how his children would flourish. 
He was a father deeply caring for the health and well-being of the children. Look what verse 3 says of their rebellion. The owner knows it, the ox knows its owner, but Israel does not know. Now that word know doesn't mean head knowledge. It doesn't mean to know the facts about something. That word know means a personal relationship. That Israel, his children, had forsaken a personal relationship with their Creator. Your rebellion against God, my rebellion against God, is like a child who rebels against his parents. And those of you who have had children who have rebelled, you know how heartbreaking that is. It absolutely rips apart the heart of a parent to see their child walk away and plunge themselves into destruction. It rips the heart of a parent apart because you see them walking away from what would cause them to flourish. So it is with us and God, our Father. When we walk away, it breaks his heart. Rebellion is relation. The second, it's not just relational, it's enslaving. Look at verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Verse 6 goes on to describe this person who has been beaten to a pulp, sores and wounds all over his body, and yet runs back in again for more punishment to get beat up again. Now that describes the addictive nature of sin and rebellion that you and I know well. We know it's not good for us. We know it leaves us depressed and feeling worthless. We know it's destroyed our marriage. We know all of this, and yet, we continue to run headlong into it. We continue to plunge ourselves into it. We can't stop. In our book, the CD, and me, Kathleen Norris writes this. I have become like the child I once knew who emerged one morning from a noisy, chaotic Sunday school classroom to inform the adults who had heard the commotion and come to investigate. We're being bad and we don't know how to stop. And so it is with us. We don't know how to stop. Why? Because rebellion is enslaving. It's enslaving, it's relational, it's enslaving. And if that's not bad enough, let me give you the third characteristic. It's far worse than you think. It's far worse than you realize. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were two wicked cities that are described in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. These were cities of the most perverse and corrupt uh, sexual immorality. They were cities of narcissistic predatory behavior. They were wicked cities. 
God destroyed him in judgment, but he saved Lot and his family because he remembered his covenant he made with Abraham. Now that's the background of Sodom and Gomorrah. That context makes the statement in verse 10 all the more shocking. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. We think Sodom and Gomorrah exists in the world outside of church. God says it exists inside the church. We're quick to point out the sins of our culture. We're quick to condemn it. We get angry. We rage on social media. And yet we have a tremendous lack of self-awareness of the depth of sin and wickedness inside of us. All our culture prizes self-esteem, that you would grow your self-esteem, that you would build your self-esteem. And there are all kinds of options for how to do that. There are podcasts, there are blogs, there are TED Talks, all kinds of things, books on how to build your self-esteem. That's not our problem. Our problem is not self-esteem or a lack of it. Our problem is a lack of self-awareness. That's our biggest problem. We have a huge lack of self-awareness. There was a 27-year-old man, Christopher Viatafa in California, who decided one day he was going to Google himself on the internet to try to build his self-esteem a little bit. It's called ego surfing. You ever done it? Most of you have. Don't admit it. Most of you have. Right? How famous am I? How famous am I on the internet? Feel a little down today. Let me see if my name pops up, right? Self-esteem building. So Christopher Viatapa did this. He Googled himself, and to his surprise, he saw that he was on the Northern California Most Wanted website. He had gone to a private party, had gotten angry, got in an argument with someone, pulled out a handgun, and he fired several rounds of it into the ground before he was persuaded to leave his party. So he left the party, didn't think a thing of it. Billy Google's name. Found out he's a fugitive. Now, self-esteem and self-awareness, real quick. Lack self-awareness. Here's the question. Why do we rarely feel the bellies? That's strong language. It's very strong language that most of us push back against. I mean, I know it's sinful, but a rebel, a rebellious? We don't feel rebellious. Why? It's the same reason that Israel didn't feel rebellious. It's the same reason why they were shocked with God's indictment. And that's because they didn't outright deny God. In fact, we're going to see it in a little bit with all the religious practices. They didn't outright deny God, but they also didn't trust Him completely. Because to trust Him completely meant a frightening relinquishment of power. So what Israel did is they tried to keep God and the gods, or their idols. They tried to keep both with very unhappy results. 
in the eyes of the prophets, including Isaiah, simultaneously trusting God and trusting idols or other gods was considered rebellion. And so it is for us that we may not outrightly deny God, but we have a lot of other gods that we functionally turn to. The prophets say that is rebellion. Ray Ortland said, well, he says to forsake the Lord or to rebel against the Lord is to treat him as the last resort. And I would add as one of many resorts rather than as the fountain. So the question is, is God functioning as a last resort for you? Or does God function as one of many resorts for you? The prophets call that rebellion. That we are rebellious children. So who does God say? Rebellious children, but second, hypocritical children. Now, while we may not understand the depth of our sin, wickedness, everyone has an innate sense that they're not measuring that they're not quite adequate. I, you are hard-pressed to find someone that would say, I am absolutely perfect. We are all aware that we're not quite measuring up to God's standard, whether we would call it God's standard or not, whether we call it our own standard or the culture standard. We are aware that we're not measuring up. The question is, when we feel like we're not measuring up, how do we respond? How did God's people respond when they didn't measure up? They got very religious. They got very religious. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. So they were bringing sacrifices. They were bringing offerings into worship. As God had commanded. Verse 13, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of consultations. Verse 14, your new moons and appointed feasts. They were taking part in all the religious rituals and the ceremonies that God had called for, and I think they probably had added a few more. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. So they were praying. And they were even praying in worship in God's presence. They had all the religious rituals. They had all the religious practices. They had all the prayers. All that was there. But their religious commitment was devoid of ethical resolve, that their lives didn't match their religious commitment, which is hypocrisy. But all of their religious activity was an attempt to cover up their inadequacy. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to engage in all kinds of religious activity to try to cover up our sin, our guilt, our shame, our inadequacy. That's the human condition. That's what God's people were doing. Now, what did God think of? 
Right? It's like, well, he's probably pretty impressed with all the religious rituals and ceremonies and prayers. I mean, if he said we're doing all this religious stuff, you'd have asked them to do, right? Not at all. Verse 11. I had enough. Verse 12. This trampling of my cords. Verse 13. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Verse 14. Your empty religious practices, my soul hates. Now, if we're talking about strong language, that's strong language. Coming from God. My soul hates, they become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. God hates hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. What's interesting, he says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God can endure sin. He, we're going to see. He'll handle sin. He can't endure sin in religious pretense. That's what he, that's what he hates, is sin in religious pretense, or religion that is void of repentance. And if you had to answer this question, what is repulsive to God? How would you answer and what, if you're to ask, what does God hate? What, what repulses him? We could probably populate a big list of hardcore crime, human, human trafficking, terrorism, adultery. Right? I mean, we could list a lot. Does your list include worship without repentance? Or does your list include religious practices with no confession and turning from sin? That's what God's saying here he hates, is the religious pretense with no repentance, with no confession, no turning away from it, turning to him. Psalm 51, 17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Jesus reserved the harshest words for the Pharisees of the day. He called them whitewashed tombs, which means they were white and polished and tidy on the outside, but they were rotting on the inside. Martin Luther said this, The curse of a godless man can sound more pleasant in God's ears than the hallelujah. After living as a quadriplegic for 45 years, Johnny Erickson Todd reflected on the dying accident that she had as a teenager. And she said that as a, as a 14 year old, that Johnny embraced Jesus as her Savior. But then she said this she had confused the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. Johnny said, I was a Christian, I would lose weight, I would get good grades, I'd get go to captain of the hockey team, I'd go to college, marry a wonderful man who made $250,000 a year, and we have 2.5 children. It was me focused, she went on to say, 
What can God do for me? I almost thought that I had done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus. And my boyfriend and I were doing some things together that were wrong. In April of 1957, she came home for what she called a sordid Friday night date. And she said this when she got home. From that day, she began to cry. She said, oh God, I'm staining your reputation by saying I'm a Christian. Yet doing one thing Friday night and another Sunday morning, I'm a hypocrite. I want you to change my life. Please do something in my life that will turn it right side up. Because I'm making a mess of the Christian faith in my life, and I don't want that. I want to glorify you. Three months later, she had a diet. And immediately after that accident, she told God, You'll never be trusted with another one of my kids. And after a period of deep anger and deep anguish, she said she finally prayed one short prayer that changed her life, and she would call this the most powerful prayer that she has ever prayed. She said, Oh God, if I can't die, then show me how to live. If I can't die, then show me how to live. Who does God save? He saves rebellious children. He saves hypocritical children. And finally, and this is beautiful, He saves blood-bought children. He says, blood-bought children. Verse 16, or back up to the end of verse 15, and all of this hard indictment language against God's children, that they're rebellious, that they're hypocritical, concludes at the end of verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. You just get that, that imagery. Their hands were full of blood. The blood of sins, so verse 16, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Before that, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. You need to be cleansed. Here's the question. How are you cleansed? Well, that begs two questions. Number one, how deep are the blood stains of sin? How deep is the stain? And then what's it take to remove it? So how deep are the bloodstains of sin? Well, notice what verse 16 says. Remove the evil of your deeds from the full hours. Not just the evil deeds, but the evil of your deeds. There's the surface sin, or the surface stain of sin of behavior. But what God says here is, you've got not just evil deeds, but the evil of your deeds. You've got deep bloodstains of sin that are of character and nature that give rise to your behavior. The stains are not surface stains. They are deep stains of character and nature. 
they want to be. And out of that comes your behavior. Israel's attempts to remove the surface stain of sin fail through their religious practices. Why? In verse 11, God says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of rams or of goats. Blood was the core effectiveness of the sacrificial system, and yet here we read that it didn't touch the heart of God. Why? Two reasons. Number one, the blood of a sacrificed animal, as Hebrews says, never removed sin. It only pointed to the blood of another that would. And number two, the blood of a sacrificed animal, even if it was sacrificed exactly as God had prescribed, but void of faith, would never remove sin. Now, what's that look like today? Well, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, in many ways, parallels the sacraments that we have in the New Testament. So, Passover in the Old Testament was a bloody sacrifice of an animal that pointed to the blood of another who would remove sin. The Lord's Supper has replaced Passover. Circumcision was a bloody sign or a bloody removal of foreskin. It was symbolic of the removing of sin. It has been replaced by baptism. Both New Testament sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, are void of blood because blood has been shed once and for all. But in the same way that an Old Testament worshiper say during Passover, would sacrifice an animal. They sacrificed the animal to blood would flow, knowing that that blood didn't take away their sin, but was pointing towards the blood of another. And when they had faith in that promise of another who would come, that sacrifice combined with faith would remove sin. In the same way today, the Lord's Supper, the eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper doesn't take away sin. The eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper, combined with faith in the one it represents, is what takes away sin. This explains why God reacted so strongly to their empty religiosity. They were, they were doing the practice without the faith, without the trust of what it's pointing to. And the same thing can happen today. We can go through the motions of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. You can take the sacrament without trusting in what it is representing, and it's, it's useless. It's empty. That's why God reacts so strongly. So when God says in verse 11, I do not delight in the blood of bulls, thanks for that question, then what is he delighting? That same verb, I do not delight, or delight, appears in Isaiah 53, 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, speaking of Jesus. Same verb there. Same verb. It delighted God the Father to crush his son. Why? Because God knew that only the blood of his son could remove the sin from his children and bring his children back. 
That's why he delights in the blood of his son. That brought his children back. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. William Cowper was a man who lived in England in the 1700s. He went to Westminster, he graduated, apprenticed with an attorney, was invited to take the bar, didn't take, didn't practice as an attorney, but then he was chosen for a very prestigious position. He was chosen to the courtship of the journals of the House of the Lords in England. A very prestigious position, but it required an interview. And then the unthinkable happened that just brought utter disaster to his life. During that interview, for this acclaimed position that he'd already been chosen for, he had a panic attack. And because of this panic attack in the interview, he didn't get the position. It sent him into a deep, deep depression. This failure cascaded him into depression, and it was in this depression that he wrote these words. Here's one question. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from the man in his And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Disappointment is a reality. It's a reality of life. We are disappointed by our failures. We're disappointed by our persistent sin. We're disappointed by people who have failed us. We're disappointed by the suffering and the brokenness of life. Disappointment has two trajectories. Everyone experiences disappointment. Everyone. No one's immune to it. But there's two trajectories. It either descends into bitterness and despair, or it rises into resilience. And only the blood of Jesus has the power to lift your disappointment into resilient hope. Nothing else can. Not your hard work, not your willpower, only the blood of Jesus. Pretending you're not disappointed won't do it. Ignoring that there is disappointment won't do it. Covering your disappointment with a bunch of religious activity won't do it. Only the blood of Jesus will. Richard Lovelace captures this well. He says, Many areas of the church which contain a great deal of legal thunder and lightning. Exposing at least the surfaces of sin are full of desperately anxious and bitterly contentious people. Law, meaning the commands of God without grace, provokes sin and aggravates it into some of its ugliest expressions. Psychoanalysts speak of the resistance patients have towards the discovery of traumatic material hidden in the unconscious. 
The same automatic fear of having repressed problems uncovered will grip and bind Christians unless they are deeply assured that they are accepted in the beloved. Received by God as if they were perfectly righteous because their guilt is canceled by the righteousness of Christ laid to their account. God simply wants honesty, openness, and a trusting reliance on Christ our Savior. Are you disappointed this morning? Is there a failure in your life that has you disappointed this descending into bitterness and despair? Is there a persistent sin in your life that has you gone way beyond disappointment and you're already mired in despair? Is there a loved one, a family member that has disappointed you over and over and over, not recognizing what they've done, leaving you in bitterness and despair. We are all disappointed to some degree. And as I said, your disappointment will go down the trajectory of bitterness and despair, or it will rise into resilient hope. And what determines the difference of that trajectory is what you do with Jesus Christ. His blood has the power to save you. You were bought at a price. Come to him. Come to him. His arms are wide open because he's already paid the price for your sin. If you're playing religious games with God, it's an empty religiosity. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Or if you're deeply disappointed, Admire in despair. Come to Jesus. You are bought with a price. You're beloved. You're chosen. You've been redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we are a disappointed people. Because if we're honest, this world is incredibly disappointing. We're aware of the brokenness. We're aware of the sin. We're aware of the mess. And yet you offer hope. Because you're a God who saves. You're a God who saves rebellious children who have made a mess of things. You're a God who saves hypocritical children who have tried to pacify you and impress you with religiosity while holding on to cherished sin. That doesn't deter you, Father. You sent your son Jesus to die and shed his blood for such children as us. And we are grateful. And Father, would you turn our hearts to your son Jesus. Father, I pray for those here that maybe have never come to Jesus, that they would come to you. Your spirit would draw them. Father, that we would understand we have been bought with a price, that we are accepted in the beloved, and that we belong to you. 
and pray the following prayer for me. Amen.